sensitive areas along the country's largely porous area with Afghanistan by the end of the year, discouraging terrorist infiltration in either direction, according to officials who told VOA. The massive army-led construction efforts to fence the entire 2,611-kilometer western frontier and build new outposts as well as forts went into action more than a year ago. Afghan Taliban stormed Ghazni City, almost 150 kilometers southwest of Kabul, Thursday night. VOA's Jeff Custer reports. At one point, the two sides were fighting in the center of the city near important government installations, including the offices of the governor and the National Directorate for Security, Afghanistan's intelligence agency. The provincial police chief said the government sent in Afghan special forces, which helped push the Taliban back to the outskirts of the city. However, he said the Taliban were taking shelter in civilian areas, making the job of the security forces difficult. Residents said fighting continued in parts of the city, particularly in the 2nd District. In a statement posted on its Twitter account, the U.S. military said, U.S. forces responded with close air support this morning in Ghazni. Afghan forces held their ground and maintained control of all government centers. Another failed attempt by the Taliban to seize terrain while creating strategically inconsequential headlines. That's VOA's Jeff Custer reporting. South Korea said Friday three South Korean companies apparently violated United Nations sanctions by importing nearly 35,000 tons of coal and iron worth nearly $6 million from the north last year. The Korea Customs Service disclosed the results of a 10-month investigation to the shipments Friday and said it will prosecute executives of the company for smuggling or forging documents to say the North Korean resources actually came from Russia. This is VOA News. Russia has denounced a new round of U.S. sanctions over its alleged chemical weapons use as an illegal gesture and says it runs counter to the constructive atmosphere at last month's summit between U.S. President Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. The announcement shook Russia's economy, with the ruble dipping to a two-year low and shares of Russian companies falling. State Department spokesperson Heather Nauert said President Donald Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have clearly laid out U.S. policies toward Russia. We'd like to have a better relationship with the Russian government, recognizing that we have a lot of areas of mutual concern. It is a major country. We are a major country as well. And so when you have that, you are forced to have to have conversations uh, with other governments. And sanctions is a way that we can try to encourage better behavior on the part of a of government. U.S. State Department officials say the new sanctions were triggered automatically by long-standing U.S. policies on the use of chemical weapons in response to the poisoning of a former Russian agent, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter Yulia in the British town of Salisbury five months ago. International relief agencies are expressing outrage and disgust at a Saudi-led coalition airstrike on Houthi rebels, which killed at least 43 people Thursday in Yemen, many of them children, more than 60 people wounded. One of the missiles struck a bus, taking children back from a summer school picnic. The Indonesian island Lombok has been hit by three quakes in little more than a week. AP correspondent Charles de Ledesma. A field hospital in Tanjong, one of the hard-hit districts in North Lombok, is still treating patients because hospitals are damaged or overwhelmed. One medic says head injuries caused by collapsed buildings have been a big cause of death. Indonesians are praying the quakes are over, but no one can be certain. According to the disaster agency, officials have recorded a staggering 450 aftershocks since Sunday. Before that, another strong quake on July 29 had already shaken Lombok, killing 16 people. I'm Charles Siledesma. A U.S. federal judge has threatened Thursday to hold U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions in contempt after learning at the hearing for two asylum seekers, a mother and daughter, that they were being deported and were on a plane to El Salvador. U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan called the government's action outrageous. He said the government appeared to have spirited away the woman and her child as they were fighting deportation. The woman, identified in court papers as Carmen, is a plaintiff in a lawsuit filed this week by the American Civil Liberties Union against Sessions over his recent decision to stop granting asylum to people who have faced domestic and gang violence. The ACLU and the government had come to an agreement that none of the people in the case will be deported before the end of Thursday. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. This is African News Tonight. 
on the Voice of America. Good evening and welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Kim Lewis in Washington. And I'm Yishwohib coming up on Africa News Tonight. There's problems with transparency that are both institutionalized in the Malian kind of democratic system, but also there's anti-transparency practices. That's Jonathan Sears, an assistant professor at Menno Simons College, who has been following Mali's election process. Details coming up. Also, Nelson Chamisa's Zimbabwe opposition MDC alliance files a court challenge to the July 30th elections. And the government in Cameroon is trying to negotiate an end to the crisis between people displaced by Boko Haram and villagers who have hosted them for the past three years. We'll have these stories and lots more ahead on African News Tonight. Zimbabwe's opposition, MDC Alliance, just a few hours ago filed its court challenge to the July 30th elections. Nelson Chamisa, the alliance's presidential candidate, tweeted, We have a good case and a good cause after the legal team arrived at the court. The opposition argues there was election fraud and that the ruling ZANU-PF party's candidate, President Emerson Mnangagwa, did not win. While the alliance legal team was heading to court today, one of its leaders also was before a judge for a second day. Yesterday, Tendai Biti was charged with inciting violence. Today, Biti, president of the People's Democratic Party, argued he could not be tried in Harare because he was brought to the country illegally. He alleges Zambian officials violated international law in denying his request for asylum and sending him back to Zimbabwe yesterday. Journalist Kudzai Zvinavashi was at the court in Harare with BT. He spoke with Alec Mucha Dehama, one of BT's lawyers. Yeah, in fact, as you might know, Mr. Biti was challenging the authority of the Zimbabwean court to try him, given the circumstances under which he was brought back to Zimbabwe, which was basically that he was abducted from Zambia and brought unlawfully into the country. When the Zambian court made it clear that he was supposed to appear before the Zambian court so that the issue of his asylum is determined. But before that could be determined, the authorities in Zambia, acting together with those in Zimbabwe, then abducted him from Zambia and took him back to Zimbabwe. And the law says that you cannot be tried by any court if the basis upon you being in that country is unlawful. So we're challenging that. So we led evidence from Mr. Tendai Biti, and the matter is still continuing to the extent that the state also wants to lead their own evidence. So the matter is continuing on Wednesday, uh, the 15th of August. Beatty crossed into Zambia on Wednesday, but Zambian officials handed him back to Zimbabwe police Thursday morning. After spending hours in court today, Beatty told journalists he thinks he will win the case. Well, I think that uh, we, exposed, we exposed the truth, and you can hide the truth, and we hope that uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe can be held accountable for failing to protect uh, people's rights. Are you... He was charged with inciting public violence last week and with illegally announcing that Nelson Chamisa had won the election. The court freed him on bail. Zimbabwe authorities say that announcement led to the protest, which resulted in police shooting six demonstrators dead. Friday's court challenge postpones an Ngagwa's inauguration scheduled for Sunday. The court has 14 days to rule. In Mali, two veteran politicians face off in a runoff presidential election on Sunday. Last week, President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita won 44.1% of the vote against 24 candidates, including second place Sumiala Sese, who earned 17%. The poll was controversial. Over half of the two dozen candidates called for the resignation of the minister in charge of elections. There were allegations of ballot box stuffing, and officials say that 767 polling stations were closed because of security issues in large parts of the 
conflict-plagued central and northern regions. Jonathan Sears is an assistant professor of international development studies at Menno Simons College, an affiliate of the University of Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada, and does research for the Centre of Francopay at the University of Quebec in Montreal. He's been following the polls in Mali and talked to reporter William Eagle about the controversial vote. There's problems with transparency that are both institutionalized in the Malian kind of democratic system, but also there's anti-transparency practices. So all that's deeply concerning, and it in a way kind of reinforces the positive and the negative from my point of view. What are some of the positives? Malians, according to the figures I've seen in terms of participation rates, it's the highest participation in a presidential election except for 2013. It was like in the low 40s, which granted is low by African standards, but by Malian standards, this is the second highest uh, participation rate in Malian presidential election history. Notwithstanding all of the conditions, the questions of insecurity, the accessibility of voter cards, you know, the, the people's suspicion as to whether or not their vote would be counted or whether it would be, um, you know, in a ballot box that ended up getting stuffed or stolen or burned, right? So notwithstanding everything that Malians understand intimately about the, the flawed nature of the democratic process in their country, they still went out and voted in very significant numbers, even in some cases, I'm sure, at a sense of the risk of their lives. The two leading candidates who go to the polls in a runoff this Sunday come from a similar background. Of the two men that are facing each other this Sunday, did they campaign on differing programs? Did they have a different vision of the country? You've asked the question, and, and this is the challenge. I mean, I spoke with the former prime minister on this uh, issue, and it's a real challenge, and I think you saw it throughout the campaign, and I think we could see this being sharpened a little bit, that the candidates really are very light on programmatic alternatives. There's a lot of, I want to do all the good things that the previous guy failed to do, and I'm not him, so you should you know, vote for me. The inability of Malian politicians at the elite level, but also even at the legislative level, to really... Uh, hear and understand and connect with voters and citizens' preoccupations in a way of converting that into political capital. It's very poor. And I think we see that in the, the sort of the lack of clear and clearly distinguishable social political programs. The other thing I'd say about the Malian case is sort of the hollowing out of the party, uh, the party system, if you will, under Amadou Toumani Touré, who ran as an independent, and sort of the, the state of disarray, if you will, that the Malian political party system is in. You know, notwithstanding the kind of establishment, you know, the historic parties, they're able to mobilize people, I guess, and under party banners. But because of the necessity of coalitions and kind of those sorts of negotiations, the idea that different parties really represent credible and clearly distinguishable alternatives is, is, just, not, is just not there. Under the current president, the economy has grown 5%. Is that enough to perhaps sway people to continue voting for him? The economic gains will be and are concentrated. They're regionally concentrated. My sense also is that they're concentrated within, if not sort of a bureaucratic, you know, sort of government business class, A, and then B, and you can see this geographically. I mean, you could say, well, most Malians live in the south of the center, and so the gains really end up being concentrated in the opportunity areas that gather around Bamako, like Sikasso, like Kai in the west. There's a wide swath of people who aren't seeing those gains, who aren't seeing that growth. That's Jonathan Sears, an assistant professor of international development studies at Menno Simons College in Winnipeg, Canada. He was speaking with VOA's William Eagle. Fighting erupted in northern Cameroon last week between people displaced by the Boko Haram insurgency and villagers who have hosted them for the past three years. The clashes left several people dead in addition to property destroyed and cattle killed. The government is trying to negotiate an end to the crisis, but the host communities say their resources have been stretched thin. Moki Edwin Kenzika reports from the northern village of Wack. An uneasy calm reigns in Wak, a village in northern Cameroon, after clashes last week between residents and people displaced by Boko Haram left several people dead and 15 wounded. 64-year-old Hifbi Haman 
leader of a community of internally displaced persons, says the conflict erupted when members of the host community beat their wives and chased them from farms they have occupied since 2015. He says their wives who are already suffering the most from Boko Haram atrocities are still not finding peace in their host communities. They are exploited and sexually harassed just because they are vulnerable, he says. Among the wounded is 42-year-old Seydou Habiba, who says she escaped from her village in July after her family was targeted three times by Boko Haram fighters. She was saved by Cameroon's military. Habiba says since war drove her from her northern village of Mozoku, she has not been able to find peace and she has no means of survival. She says all that she is asking for is a means to raise domestic animals or a farm to grow crops. The village of Wak has received more than 700 internally displaced people since 2015 when fighting between Cameroon's military and Boko Haram spiked on the border with Nigeria. Governor of the region, Kildadi Tageke Buka, visited the area Thursday in hopes of resolving the conflict between villagers and the IDPs. He declared the conflict a provocation by IDPs who occupied more land than they were given by their hosts. Il y a un manque d'allégeance des populations déplacées vis-à-vis -vis de chefs traditionnels. Il y a une destruction des arbres. He says the recent bloody conflict was sparked by the refusal of internally displaced persons to obey instructions from traditional rulers not to illegally occupy host community farms cattle ranches and land reserves. Bukar says he has strongly instructed the IDPs to respect their hosts and for the host communities to learn to live in solidarity with the people displaced by Boko Haram. The United Nations says Boko Haram fighting has affected food security in parts of Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad and Niger, a major reason for the conflict between host communities and refugees. Cameroon's Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development says two million people in the country are at risk of food insecurity, 70% of them on its northern border with Nigeria. Rafael Ba is a Cameroon Red Cross official in the north. He says more funding is needed to assist host communities and refugees to prevent further conflict. La première intervention he says the first and most important thing they have done for now to calm the conflict is providing 15,000 people with food aid. He says the second thing they will do to stop dependency on aid is to hand out planting seeds to host communities and IDPs to increase their production and to fight hunger and famine. Boko Haram has displaced nearly a quarter million Cameroonians through violence that began when the Nigerian Islamist group began using Cameroon for bases. Cameroon says it has only received one-third of the $690 million in aid required this year to meet the needs of displaced people and host communities. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, WAC. Northern Cameroon. You're listening to Africa News Tonight live on the following frequencies 15, 580, and 6080 kilohertz on the Voice of America. I'm Kim Lewis in Washington. I'm Hayes Wuhib, 19 past the hour. Here's a recap of our top stories. Nelson Chamisa's Zimbabwe opposition MDC alliance has filed a court challenge to the July 30th elections. In Mali, two veteran politicians face off in a runoff presidential election 
on Sunday, and the government in Cameroon is trying to negotiate an end to the crisis between peoples displaced by the Boko Haram insurgency and villagers who have hosted them for the last three years. And for more news and information, visit our website at voaafrica.com. The leaders of a study by one of the world's leading HIV research institutions are hoping their results will transform strategies aimed at preventing new infections in Africa. The Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, or CAPRISA, has shown how relationships between young women and men who are on, uh, on average nine years older are driving the HIV epidemic in the country and possibly on the continent. CAPRISA warns that infections will rise alarmingly unless prevention efforts focus on the age disparity. Darren Taylor reports in the final part of a series on this issue. Heavy machinery helps to build a road in Vulindlela, a rural community in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. It's an epicenter of the global HIV epidemic. One out of every four adults here is infected with the virus. The director of the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, or CAPRISA, Professor Salim Karim, says places like Vulindlela show HIV remains a disaster in the country. Of the global HIV epidemic being in southern Africa, three to three and a half million new infections each day in Africa. And South Africa is the biggest contributor to those new infections. Karim's fellow medical scientist, Professor Tulio D'Oliveira, says it's time for a different approach and that means directing efforts towards what he calls a special group infecting young women on the continent, men around 30 years of age. That's normally when men think that they are invincible, yeah, and they don't really engage a lot on treatment or testing, yeah. A Caprice study has revealed the cycle of HIV transmission by analyzing the genes of the HIV viruses of thousands of infected people in Vulindlela. It finds that men between the ages of 25 and 35 are the key infectors of younger women. The women who are mostly poor often get into relationships with men who can provide them with food and other basic necessities. These unemployed young men playing table soccer in a tavern in Vulindlela say it's difficult to get a girlfriend in the township if you don't have an income. Karim says as long as there's serious poverty and young women are in sexual relationships just for survival, HIV infection rates will continue to spike. We have a situation where women have multiple partners. So they're not having more sex, they're just having different partners. And in a situation where you've got a high prevalence of HIV, you're more likely to come across somebody who's got HIV. Dolavira says prevention resources must be used to educate the link that's been missed so far in the HIV transmission chain, the men in their mid-20s and 30s. But veteran HIV counsellor Getwana Mahlase doubts whether young men are willing to take the necessary steps. She's seen thousands of them in KwaZulu-Natal over the past few decades, like these youths singing before a football match. And she says they know what to do to prevent HIV. They just don't do it. Marklasse says there's little chance of condom usage becoming widespread in the areas in which she works. Men have all the power, she explains, and most men don't like to use condoms. Or else the boy turns the things around and say, if you want me to use a condom, it means that you know that you are HIV positive and you do not want to give me HIV. So it becomes very nasty for the girls. Another intervention that Caprice is pushing is a huge free rollout to young women of a pill that significantly reduces the possibility of contracting HIV. 
It's called pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. If the pill is taken once a day for about a month prior to having sex, it can reduce the possibility of HIV infection by up to 90%. Machla says she's doing her best to convince young women about the benefits of PrEP, mostly without success. I ask them, like, why would you not use PrEP? Because maybe some boyfriend will think that I am cheating. This is Bonga Musa Butelezi's office. He's the local Induna, or Zulu chief. Butelezi says there's only one solution to the ever-increasing rates of HIV among young women in the area. Employment. The chief says if the women have jobs, there'll be no need for them to get involved in dangerous relationships with older men. Machlase lectures yet another group of young men about the dangers of not knowing their HIV status and then having relationships with girls as young as 15. They promise to be tested. They agree that such interactions are wrong. Later, Mahla says sighs and says some of the men who made the pretty promises will tomorrow be the same ones spreading HIV in the community. Yet in the midst of the desperation, there are positive signs. Growing numbers of young men in KwaZulu-Natal and elsewhere are getting medically circumcised, an effective way to reduce their chances of getting and transmitting HIV. I'm Darren Taylor for VOA News in Vulindlela, South Africa. Sudan's ruling National Congress Party has nominated President Omar al-Bashir to run again in 2020, even though it would violate the current two-term limit. The 74-year-old Bashir already has ruled the country for 29 years and previously said he would step down when his current term expires. A 1989 military coup first brought Bashir to power and he has won two five-year terms since the country's new constitution took effect in 2010. The NCP revised the party's rules last night to drop a two-term limit and now will have to change the national constitution so Bashir can run again. The International Criminal Court has indicted Bashir for war crimes and crimes against humanity allegedly committed in Darfur in 2009. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehi Suhib in Washington. And I'm Kim Lewis. And for all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. For listeners on VOA's Nairobi FM station, please stay tuned for the Swahili Evening News coming up at 1630 UTC. For all other listeners, please stay tuned to the sunny side of sports. Tune in again at 1800 UTC for another edition of Africa News Tonight. On behalf of our producer, Bill Workinger, and our engineer, Patrick Deo, Thanks for choosing the Voice of America. When news breaks, VOA Africa is there. On weekends, tune into Nightline Africa at 1600 and 1800 UTC. And our five-minute newscasts come to you at the top of each hour. VOA Africa, your trusted source of information. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of VOA's Encounter. This week, African elections, fallout from a narrow and disputed victory for ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, and we preview what's at stake for the runoff election in Mali with J. Peter Fahm, director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and John Tomaszewski, Africa director at the International Republican Institute. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Savor the flavor of African music. Hi, I'm Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Tune in, feast your ears, and dig in to an hour of amazing Pan-African music, featured interviews, and music news. Music Time in Africa. 
Saturday and Sunday at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Stand up! Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America. This is Dan Friedel, and for VOA's Sunny Young in Washington, welcome to the sunny side of sports. Here on August 10th, we'll bring you some updates on African sports from our intrepid correspondents on the continent. Some news and sports features from Jim Stevenson's The Game Room podcast. A look at the results of the first round of the PGA Championship going on near St. Louis. Some transfer news in English soccer ahead of the Premier League's opening weekend. And a discussion about Fortnite, a video game that is dominating computers and consoles around the world. First off, we're joined by Samson Omale, who has updates on soccer and track and field around Africa. Welcome, Samson. We begin in France, where the FIFA Under-20 Female World Cup is currently underway. Nigeria on Thursday met Haiti, and it was Rashida Ajibadi's first half penalty kick that gave the girls a 1-0 edge over Haiti in Group D to secure a crucial three points, keeping their knockout round qualification hopes alive. Nigeria's final group game will be against China on Monday. There are four groups of four, with the top two teams progressing to the quarterfinal stage. Ghana, the other African representative, at this year's World Cup hopes of qualifying to the last eight were dashed with a 4-0 defeat to the Netherlands on Wednesday. And staying with the women's football ahead of the Kosafa Cup Women's Championship, South Africa's national women football coach Destry Ellis is pleased with the players' fitness levels considering the fact that the last time the team were in camp was two months ago. Coach Ellis has called the players to his selection camp ahead of the Kosafa Women's Championship which takes place at the end of the month. Well, we're busy qualifying for the World Cup. We just qualified for AFCON. Um, we're going to the Kosafa Cup in September with the holders. Um, obviously, that is part of preparation. Yeah. It's similar. It's a tournament-type um, competition, which is similar to AFCON. And uh, we've never won AFCON, and it would be fantastic to win it this time around because you automatically yeah. then qualify for the World Cup. Former Nigerian international Emmanuel Amuneke is delighted with the opportunity afforded him to coach the Tanzania national team. The former Al-Khartoum's gaffer was announced early this week as a new boss of the Taifa Stars after reaching a two-year agreement with the country's federation. 47-year-old coach Amuneke says his appointment is a new challenge as it will afford him a chance to develop football in the East African country. Uh, we are here to see how we can contribute our own ideas to the development of Tanzanian football. Yeah, we are aware that uh, we have a qualification in the AFCON. I think the next game is against Uganda, in Uganda. So I'm much aware of the challenges, I'm much aware of the expectations, but I can also tell you that uh, in football, uh, you don't make much promises. The best thing is you try to be focused and do what is needful for the team. And now to athletics news. The Olympic Commonwealth and 800 meters world champion South Africa's Casta Semaya says she's got her eyes to run faster times in the remaining races for the year. Casta Semaya returned to South Africa after smashing a 25-year-old African record in the 800 meters at the African Athletics Championships in Nigeria. We still believe that we can still go faster. We just put a little bit of distance on hold and then we focus focus more on 400, 800 meters, but obviously top five is still uh, the goal. We will still, you know, do, you know, three events. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. Thank you, Samson. I'm always interested in hearing about what's in store for Castor Semenya after she burst onto the scene at the World Championships in 2009 in Berlin. Now let's turn to what some other African women are doing, this time on the soccer field. Mugume Davis-Rakaringi joins us with a story on a female soccer goalkeeper in Uganda. (laughs) 
a throw jumps high to make a save from one of the male players at Uganda Christian University Mokono Playground. Most evenings, Aturo and a few other female soccer players must assemble alongside their male counterparts for a soccer training session. Although Aturo loved playing soccer since she was still a little girl, she never knew she would play as a goalkeeper. In fact, she describes her start in the goalposts as in a funny way. We had some small game whereby I was playing with some men and they were like, they didn't have a goalkeeper. So they told me, Ruth, can you please maybe come and stand in our goal and help us do something? But then I told them I don't have the idea of being in goal, but I had to force myself. So when I, I went to goal, I did something good that made everyone appreciate and I saved my team. So from that day onwards is when I started becoming a goalkeeper. And that was in 2013 at Kawembe Secondary School, where she played for the school team as a striker or a forward. That year, she was voted the best goalkeeper after helping her team win women league championship. Consequently, she was summoned the national team. I do my extra training. I, I watch clips of the best goalkeepers. I, I watch maybe the Premier League, how those goalkeepers make it in goal. I like watching the women World Cup teams. And my best, my role model is Hope Solo from the USA. He's my, she's my best goalkeeper and I like watching her clips. Another female who trains alongside Aturo is left fullback Sharon Acheng Chiza, her teammate at Lady Cannon's university team. She's a friendly person and actually if we're on the pitch, she's, she tries to communicate to the, defend, to the defensive line and she always tells you what to do. She encourages, she encourages you if like whether you make a mistake or you conceive the goal, still she, she does that encouraging like you don't give up when actually she's in the goal and when she's she's in the goal you're all comfortable that at least you have someone behind peter frank seburime the team manager and coach for the lady cannons agrees she's willing to learn she's a good commander in defense he can organize he can motivate the defenders so that he can they cannot shoot like he does shots in the goal you know girls they're not active and they have that tendency that, ah, even if he be, but if Arturo doesn't have that. Even if he's, he's in training, he's a very serious girl. Arturo's main challenge is training and playing with male counterparts whose physique require her to put more energy. But she's taking that as an advantage. Boys make me more sharp and concentrate because their work rate is very much different from ladies. They are so speedy and they're ever maybe on your half they shoot balls anytime whereby they make you be alert that anytime they're going to make me make a shot in goal, that is the positive part of it. Aturo believes many international scouting agents watch her exploits at the Sekafa tournament, which helped her team emerge second, just three points from winners Tanzania. For the Sony side of sports, Ayamugume, Davis Ruakarinji in Kampala, Uganda. Thank you, Mugume. It's great to hear about how women are improving in soccer in Africa. We look forward to following Aturo's progress as she improves in soccer. I'm Dan Friedel, in for Sunny Young in Washington, and you're listening to The Sunny Side of Sports on The Voice of America. Next up on the show... We're going to hear about some people who are trying to spread the American sport of baseball in Myanmar and get some words of wisdom from Ida Keeling, a 102-year-old woman who just published a book about her life, which included a running world record as a 95-year-old. Those stories are all part of Jim Stevenson's The Game Room podcast, available every week at voanews.com. In Myanmar, the most popular sport is football. But baseball, which is America's national pastime, has carved a small niche for itself thanks to a man from Japan. This is where the game of baseball is literally a small grassroots movement. The infield of an old horse track is now the home field of the Myanmar national baseball team. The club is a collection of part-time players with day jobs. They include maintenance workers, a teacher, a cook, and a taxi driver named Jothoyatun. 
He's 33 years old, married with two daughters. I drive the car to work for my family and I play baseball because I love it. Toro Iwasaki of Japan, the founder of a local private primary school, started the team 18 years ago. The program gets very little financial support from the National Sports Ministry and depends mostly on money from Coach Iwasaki's own pocket to stay afloat. Surely I like baseball. I like the baseball and I'd like to introduce baseball in this country, spread more. This is my passion. Play ball! On a cloudy afternoon, the Myanmar national team took on a ragtag squad of expatriates from the United States and Japan. I like coming out with the guys and the camaraderie that comes out of it. Mick Amundsen Giesel grew up in America and works as a guidance counselor at an international school in Yangon. But he's competing against the Myanmar national team, a team that he occasionally practices with. It's definitely an American game, but it certainly has uh, Asian aspects here. Like the language that they use and the cheers that they do. You get a sense of baseball's popularity or lack of it in Myanmar by looking at the number of people in the stands. The team prepared a printout explaining the basic rules of the game in the local Burmese language to help fans understand it. Few people are familiar with baseball in Myanmar, where football, also known as soccer, is still king. But taxi driver Jothuyatun has learned to love the game. People don't even know what this uniform is for. In other countries, people know this is a baseball uniform. But here it's hard to explain what baseball is about. For now, baseball is likely to remain a fringe sport in Myanmar. But this team is making its own contribution, promoting America's national pastime. A 102-year-old woman from New York who set a world record as a runner just seven years ago has published a memoir documenting the achievements and tribulations of her challenging life. Ida Keeling's newly published book is titled, Can't Nothing Bring Me Down? Keeling began running in her late 60s. At the age of 95, she set the world record for her age group in the 60-meter race. She is also the first woman in history to complete a 100-meter race at the age of 100. What could have brought her down was the death of her two sons within a year of each other. After they passed away, I just couldn't get over both of them. So I felt like I was going down. I'm already short. I'm getting shorter. I'm getting meaner and I don't want to talk to nobody. Something went wrong, and I blamed myself. Neeling says she took up running at her daughter's suggestion. I went with this run, but while I was running, I was feeling my strength, and I was feeling like I was coming up out of a hole, and I just kept on going. Despite arthritis in her fingers and knees, the 102-year-old starts every morning with stretching and some exercise, including push-ups. She encourages other people to stay physically active regardless of age. Get up and get around. Don't sit around doing nothing. Get up and do something. Sometimes you got things that, well, I don't like to do this. Get up and do it and get rid of it and look. See how different you feel. It's a big thing. The number of people who live to be 100 is relatively small but growing. The 2010 census recorded 53,000 centenarians living in the United States, 20,000 more than in 1980. Scientists say good genes are important, but that a healthy lifestyle and exercise contribute to longevity. The Game Room opens with news stories each week, or play anytime on voanews.com. Thank you, Jim. You're listening to The Sunny Side of Sports on The Voice of America. I'm Dan Friedel, filling in for Sunny here in Washington, D.C. Quickly turning to the Professional Golf Championship in St. Louis this week, the opening round closed on Thursday with Gary Woodland shooting a round best 64 and Ricky Fowler one shot behind. More than 40 golfers were bunched in the group sitting either at one under, even par, or one over. 
That group included Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. A quick look at today's scores show that Woodland is now tied with Kevin Kisner. Kisner is through 13 holes today and shot a six under so far. Brooks Kepka is two shots behind with seven under for the tournament. Now we're joined in studio by Prince Nesta, who has some Nesta nuggets for us ahead of the big opening match later today that starts the English Premier League season. Welcome to the show, Prince. Sporty greetings. Sporty greetings to you too, Dan. So yesterday was the transfer deadline day, Prince, with teams rushing to complete their last-minute deals before the season kicks off. We talked about a few of those big deals yesterday. Anything else happen later in the day? Oh, yeah, it was a day full of drama. Uh, Various teams witnessed key signings and departures. Top on the list, Everton were busy in the markets and managed to sign four key players. The Toffees secured the signings of Barcelona's duo Yeri Mina, who plays centre-back and Portuguese midfielder Andre Gomez. They also signed Brazilian international Bernard from Shakhtar Donetsk on a four-year deal and French centre-back Kat Zuma on a season-long loan from Chelsea. Jamie Vardy also signed a new four-year deal at Leicester City, while Crystal Palace secured a Crystal Palace manager Roy Hodgson also signed a new one-year contract extension to keep him at Selhurst Park until 2020. Ghanaian forward uh, Jordan Ayew also joined Crystal Palace on a season-long loan from Swansea. The 26-year-old said, and I quote, I'm very pleased to be here. It's been a long transfer window, but I finally got a move. The important thing for me now is to get fit and to be in good shape, and I know the manager wants to use me up front and make things happen. Leonardo Ojoa is set, also said to leave Leicester City after signing a permanent deal with an unnamed Mexican club. So Prince, we remember from a couple years ago that incredible turnaround that Leicester City had. Yeah. How important is it for them to sign Jamie Vardy for four more years and just establish him as the centerpiece of that franchise? It's very important considering the fact that Riyad Mahrez has actually joined Man- uh, Manchester City and of course they have lost a prominent prominent key figure in that particular team. So um, they keep their hopes alive by maintaining the status of uh Leicester City's um, striker, um, Jamie Vardy. So um, any other key or notable names that have been in the conversation in the last uh, 24 hours before we head into a little bit of a talk about the games coming up this weekend? Absolutely. Fulham were also very busy. They also managed to sign Luciano Vieto on a season-long loan from Atletico Madrid. They also signed left-sided midfielder and wing-back Joe Bryan from Bristol City and also got goalkeeper Sergio Rico from Sevilla on a season-long loan. Prince, fans of soccer, English soccer, all over Africa and all over the world, I know friends of mine will be setting their alarms for early tomorrow morning to watch (laughs) some of the matches. Uh, The Premier League season kicks off in a few hours. Who's going to be playing today? Oh, yes, and I'm so excited about that. By the way, I'm also one of those people who are going to be waking up tomorrow very early in the morning. Well, today, Manchester United hosts Leicester City at Old Trafford. Manchester United will actually, and Manchester United fans won't like this, they will be without Antonio Valencia, Marcos Rojo, Diogo Dalot, Ander Herrera, and Nemanja Vidic, and Nemanja Matic, sorry, who are all injured. And Leicester manager Claude Puel will also decide whether to include striker Jamie Vardy, who just signed a new contract, and defender Henry Maguire, who are both returning late from the World Cup. It will also be interesting to see how Leicester City copes without their dependable attacking midfielder Riyad Mahrez, who just joined Manchester City. And also it's worth noting that Jose Mourinho has never lost an opening day fixture in the Premier League campaign. So, Prince, uh, 
Saturday and Sunday, a couple more games on each day that you have as must-see <laughs> television. Which games will you be watching Saturday and Sunday? Great games lined up this weekend on Saturday and Sunday. Newcastle will be hosting Tottenham Hotspurs, while Chelsea will be away to Huddersfield Town. Well, I can't wait for Sunday, Dan. That's when the big match, my team Arsenal, will be taking on the defending champions, Manchester City, while Liverpool will be taking on West Ham. We shall keep you updated on all the scores, fixtures, and results right here on the sunny side of sports. Thanks, Prince. It's been a pleasure talking to you <laughs> the last couple of weeks while I've been filling in for Sunny. Anytime. You're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Now we're joined in studio by VOA intern Alex Hodge. Alex is transitioning to journalism after a couple years of playing American-style football in college. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Alex, I've heard you've been playing one of the most popular video games in the world right now. It's called Fortnite. We've seen the game referenced in pop culture and sports culture worldwide. So I'm a little bit of a gamer myself. I tend to focus on FIFA primarily, and I'm looking forward to the new edition of the game coming out this fall. What can you tell me about how Fortnite works, and how should I get started playing it? Well, Fortnite, it's, it's called a battle royale game where 100 people are loaded up into a bus, and you have to jump from the bus to land on the dystopian future-like land. So the object of the game is to eliminate the other 99 players. So along the way, you have to gather material, which is wood, brick, or stone. Then you have to gather weapons in order to eliminate the other players. So Alex, uh, can I play this game for free, or does it cost any money to get started? Oh, without a doubt, you can play for free, and you can uh, follow the challenges along the way to unlock new skins or new axe tools or new gliders. You don't spend a dime. But you can spend money, is that correct? Uh, yes, you can. You spend a lot of money, actually. <laughs> How much money have you spent on this game? I'll say probably 30 to $40 so far. So the, uh, the idea is that you can improve the quality of your player, you can improve the looks of the player, you can buy celebrations of your player. Um, have you heard any stories of people spending tens of thousands of dollars on this game? Oh, without a doubt. Um, I actually follow a YouTuber. His name is iMaverick. He spends about $1,000 a month on Fortnite. You're kidding. Without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if I'm going to download the game on my console, my PS4... Would you suggest I spend a little time first watching videos on YouTube or Twitch to just familiarize myself with what I'm getting into? Yeah, without a doubt. Since the game has been out for about a year now, so people are very experienced at the game. So I would download the game, play for a little bit, get yourself acclimated, and then go into spending money. I see. So have we seen any uh, uh, sports and Fortnite culture intersections so far this summer? Yes, we have. And that's actually the beauty of Fortnite, how it has that pop culture appeal. So Ninja, who is the number one Fortnite player, he collaborated with Drake, the uh, the singer, uh, Travis Scott, the rapper, and Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. They actually broke the Twitch stream record for most people to watch on one twi Twitch stream. And I also remember seeing Antoine Greitzman celebrate after scoring a penalty kick goal in the World Cup final match uh, between France and Croatia. What was he doing? So that was one of the most epic moments in sports history because he was doing the, the famous took the L dance. And he did it after scoring a goal. And it was at the World Cup with millions of people watching. It was epic. So... Um, Tell me about some of the issues that uh, our listeners in Africa might have if they're trying to get into Fortnite. Well, so South Africa is the biggest uh, country in Africa to play uh, video games. And so they don't have that good gaming servers since they're using European servers. So the game is really slow for them and it causes a lot of problems for them. Uh, one item of note that we were talking about earlier today is that the there is going to be a World Cup for Fortnite starting next year. How much prize money is on the line? $100 million. You think you'll be able to get a piece of that? Oh, I'm definitely going to try. <laughs> um, this time two years ago, Alex, 
We saw Pokemon Go everywhere. People were walking into trees, falling into water. They were so into that game, and now you hardly hear of anybody playing it. Do you think Fortnite is going to have more staying power than Pokemon Go? Oh, without a doubt. It's, it's totally eclipsed Pokemon Go, without a doubt. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the sunny side of sports. And that wraps up our show for August 10th. Thanks to VOA producer Bill Workinger. Thanks also to VOA engineer Patrick Dea. And thank you for tuning in. I'm Dan Friedel in Washington, and that's the sunny side of sports. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The people of Zimbabwe recently went to the polls to elect a new president. According to the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, incumbent president Emerson Mnangagwa of the ruling ZANU-PF party won the July 30th election by a narrow margin. But the opposition said the results are fraudulent and has challenged the results in court. This election presented Zimbabwe with an historic chance to move beyond the political and economic mismanagement of the past and toward democratic change. The Zimbabwean people turned out massively to cast their votes, underscoring their aspirations for a better future, despite challenges during the pre-election period. Unfortunately, according to international observers, while Election Day itself was peaceful, the period directly after was marred by violence and disproportionate use of deadly force by security forces against protesters. The United States extends its condolences to the families and friends of those killed and injured and calls on the leaders of all parties and their supporters to act peacefully. The United States welcomed the commitment by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission to release comprehensive and transparent election results, said State Department spokesperson Heather Nauert. The United States will continue to review the data collected by its own observation teams, by international observation missions, and by local observers to make a complete assessment of the overall election. We encourage all stakeholders and citizens to pursue any grievances peacefully and through established legal channels, said Ms. Nauert, and we encourage all political leaders to show magnanimity in victory and graciousness in defeat. The United States remains focused on working with Zimbabwe as its people and government strive toward still-needed comprehensive electoral, political, economic, and human rights reforms. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. If you have a comment, please write to Editorials, VOA, Washington, D.C., 20237, USA. You may also comment and view all our current editorials at the VOA Editorials homepage, www.voanews.com editorials. When news breaks, VOA Africa is there. On weekends, tune into Nightline Africa at 1600 and 1800 UTC. And our five-minute newscasts come to you at the top of each hour. VOA Africa, your trusted source of information. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week 
right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of VOA's Encounter. This week, African elections, fallout from a narrow and disputed victory for ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, and we preview what's at stake for the runoff election in Mali with J. Peter Pham, director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and John Tomaszewski, Africa director at the International Republican Institute. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Pakistan officials tape VOA that it will have unilaterally fenced sensitive areas along the country's largely porous border with Afghanistan by the end of the year to discourage terrorist infiltration in either direction. The massive army-led construction effort to fence the entire